0: Now, as we prepare uh, to hear god 's word i 'm going to ask you to open if you would with me today to exodus thirty three though we have been going through first Samuel last week, we took a day uh, a Sunday off to consider reformation sunday and and looked into those rich things that God worked to recover in those days of the F- reformation, a return to the scripture and its commitment, a recognition that gospel is all of God, all of grace through Christ alone, through faith alone, and those rich recoveries of core essentials of the gospel that God wrought in those days. And I just wanted to consider today a passage out of Exodus chapter 33. So go there if, with me if you would and listen as I read from God's word. I'm going to read verses uh, 12 through 17 of Exodus 33 then we will pray and consider listen as I read God's Word Moses said to the Lord see you say to me bring up this people but you have not let me know whom you will send with me yet you have said I know you by name and you have also found favor in my sight now therefore if I have found favor in your sight Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, This very thing that you have spoken I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Let us pray. Lord God, right now, as we prepare ourselves in this time to uh, consider your word, we are thankful that you have given it to us. Even these things that you communicated so long ago through Moses for the sake of your people, God, we know that you have communicated it so that even today we would have a clearer recognition of who you are in your eternal purposes, how it is that you work among your people, the way that your grace in so uh, uh, marking a people. Manifests itself in their lives. Lord, we thank you for Moses and uh, the way that at various times you use him as such a clear picture, uh, evidencing uh, intercession and faithfulness and, and proclaiming your word to the people and calling them to account. Lord, we would ask that the things we consider now, that you would also bless us and give us an understanding of your word. Make it clearer that we may know and grow. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. When we look at this passage, really to, to, to lay the groundwork for what's going on, go with me, if you would, just a little further back. We're going to look at the very beginning of Exodus 33. And even as you're looking back to it, I want, we want to know where this is. This is the Exodus has already taken place God has raised up Moses brought him back out of the wilderness area used him and Aaron to communicate his will to Pharaoh Pharaoh refusing all of the plagues of punishment that were brought upon them and then God miraculously with a mighty hand and a powerful arm as if on the wings of eagles bore his children out of slavery brought them through that sea on dry ground all that remarkable work after delivering them God himself had even appeared to them at the mountain with thunder and lightning and smoke and cloud there were such distinctive displays of God's presence and remarkable holiness that filled the people with astounding fear such that they said let us hear no more from God lest we die and they insisted that Moses go and you go get the law for us and then you come down and tell us because if God tells us we will die and Moses goes and we know that tragically the children of Israel after Moses was gone for less than two months really less than a month and a half they suddenly decided Moses is gone somehow in their mixed-up mind that also meant to them that God was gone which how would that be but they decided to make for themselves their own gods and we remember that they compelled and really prevailed upon Aaron he fashioned for them the, the golden calf. They gathered around and said, Here is your God that delivered you. They all worshipped it and rose to play in, in the wickedest sense of that expression. And, and Moses is informed by God of this and comes down and really in, it breaks those first tablets. And they have forsaken God in that time. Moses, we remember, interceded for the people that God would not destroy them and this, then just build the people from him but that God would have mercy on them we know that uh, shortly after that the levites then go through called out by God it, with their swords and purge the camp to a large extent so all of this is what's going on uh, in israel uh, so so there is a, a real certainty of who God is There has been the manifestation of his power and his law, a display of his judgment. There has been remarkable provision for the children of Israel in terms of food and necessities. And when we come to chapter 33, God is giving to Moses preparatory instructions for when they go into the land, this is what you will expect. This is what will happen. Now, God is rightly displeased and disapproving of the children of Israel. Correct? I mean, they have behaved wickedly. And so when God is speaking to him here, in the beginning of chapter 33, it says, The Lord said to Moses, Depart from here, go up. You and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt. When I look at that phrasing, it almost sounds like a test to me. You and the people that you have brought up. Because did Moses really do it? And what's beautiful about it is as in the section that I read, uh, Moses is say, keeps saying to God, I and your people. I and your people. He didn't get confused and think that he had done it and they were now his people. But God is putting that out to him there. Look, you and your people... To to the land that I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying to your offspring, I will give it. Now look at verse 2. Now this is a statement of because of God's displeasure with them, he says this, I will, verse 2, send an angel before you to drive out the Canaanites and the Amorites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. Go up to a land that is flowing with, with milk and honey, but I will not... Go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. Verse 4 says, When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned, and no one put on his ornaments. The Lord said to Moses, For the Lord said to Moses, Say to the people of Israel, You are a stiff-necked people. For if for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So now, take off your ornaments, that I may know what to do with you. I mean, that is very strong, isn't it? So, here God had delivered them. God had been with them. Remember, there was clear evidence of God's presence. There was a, a pillar of fire by night and a pillar of cloud of smoke by day and so where they would go God would raise up from over the tabernacle and move out before them they would gather up and they would follow and he would lead them exactly where they would go and now what he's telling them is this I'm not going with you I am not coming with you I'm still gonna make sure you get the victory I'm gonna send an angel before you and you are going to have victory over all these people and you are going to possess the land. But I'm just not gonna be there with you. And What I love about this is really there is a sense in which this passage shows us the evidence of electing grace. We, be, we begin to see distinguishing characteristics of those who truly see and know the grace of God. Because I, you, I love what we see here. Um, look what it says in verse 15. Moses says to God, and he said to him, If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. The the evidence that we see here or how shall it be known that we have found grace or found favor is first of all a desperate desire for the presence of God. I'm going to give you the land. I'm going to give you the victory. I'm going to give you prosperity. It's overflowing with milk and honey. I'm going to give you all these things, but I'm not going to be with you now I'm glad Moses didn't put this to a vote because I'm not sure what would have happened with the children of Israel but we see in Moses' heart what is his response God if you're not going we don't want it I don't want any part of it because to give me the whole world to give us all of the promises and all of the benefits and all of the advantages and all of the successes and all of the pleasures to have all of that But to not have you, I don't want it. That's a remarkable thing, isn't it? And and it shows that the commitment is a desire for the presence of God, a desire for that real nearness to and relationship with God, that that was a priority over the other things. Now what's even more interesting as you look at that, the warning is, if I go up with you, I would consume you because you are a rebellious and stiff necked people. What does that speak about to us? God, in His absolute holiness, will ultimately, we know, bring every deed to judgment. That nothing escapes him, even though he's merciful and compassionate and slow to anger. The children of Israel are so stiff-necked, so hard-hearted, that he's saying this. If I go up with you, you're going to die. Because no one on their own in their natural condition can really stand in the presence of a holy God and not be consumed. I mean, why do we why are we able to draw near with boldness and confidence? It's because we draw near in Jesus Christ. Uh, not because of ourselves. We don't come to him uh, with with some sort of list of what makes us worthy. Because we know no list would ever work that if he was to really look at the the nature and tone of all that we were as we were born into this world and lived in it we were by nature children of wrath like the rest we were stiff-necked and hard-hearted until in God's kindness and mercy his grace found us and when his grace found us He then humbled us to not trust in ourselves, to not hope in ourselves, but to look to Christ and to hope in Christ and have that sort of longing and desire that Moses indicates here. Look, so, but by denying this, what ends up happening? The Lord stays with them, but they don't make a quick journey into the promised land now, do they? What's going to happen now following these chapters? They're going to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. And I'm going to ask you another question. What's going to happen to all of those who were there and delivered out? They would all be consumed. I mean, what did God say? If I go with you, you will be consumed because you are a stubborn and stiff-necked people. Moses said, but Lord, if you're not going with us, we don't want to go. Well, in spite of the fact that God is merciful, people better not presume on his mercy and kindness, because he will bring everything to judgment. It is appointed for man once to die, and then the judgment. And there is no escape. And because of God's kindness and mercy, men take it light. Men live in this world for, the, for all of those kinds of things. Really, there's a sense in which what God was stirring up in the heart of Moses is a distinctive thing that really develops in the heart of all believers. That desperate desire for a nearness to and a, and a walk with the presence of God. Where, where, where we would be able to say the words of, of that hymn, you know, you can take this whole world but give me Jesus. Because uh, none of it matters if I don't have Him. I remember a a number of years ago reading something where the author of that was saying, um, one of the tests you can begin to test your heart with is what are you longing for and looking forward to? Are you longing for and looking for His appearing? His glorious appearing of our Savior? Do you just long to see Him? And, and, the, and your greatest longing of heaven is He shall dwell with us and we will dwell with Him. Is that your greatest longing? Or are you excited about the marriage supper of the Lamb? thinking what will that feast be are you thinking about the food too many people say I can't wait to think I can't wait to think how great that feast will be how big my mention in glory will be I can't wait to see this person and that person maybe for maybe loved ones that we had spent time with or maybe saints of old I've heard I've heard preachers say when I get to heaven the first thing I'm gonna do is I'm gonna find Moses and Martin Luther, and I'm... Come on! I don't think so. When you... What are you going to see? Christ! The Lamb of God! Are, Are you really going to be... Here is God, in all of His manifest glory, you now in your glorified bodies, developed in such a way, that you can now gaze upon Him, and not die. Live in His presence, and you're gonna you're gonna look away from that and say, Where, "Where's where's Martin Luther?" <laughs> really? I mean, I don't know the full nature of it, but but one of the the thing that I was reading was saying that there are so many people who, if if you would be satisfied with a Christless heaven, then do you really know Him? Means. No more tears, no more sadness, no more sickness, mansions of glory, plenty of food, no chores, you know, uh, uh, all of your friends, all of the good. That would be heaven, and people would be like, yeah, that would be. Oh, and Jesus will be there. No, well, no if, if that's just a secondary, incidental, distant thing, that eh, if he's there, that's great. If he's not, I'm good if everything else is great. You've missed it. <laughs> You've missed it, you know, uh, who would care ultimately whether we were living in mansions or in shacks or sleeping in the open air, if the glory of God is present. Here, uh, God is saying, look, I'm going to give everything I've promised, but I won't be there with you. And Moses says, and I believe really stirred by the Spirit of God, no, no. If you're not going, don't take us there. (laughs) Because you're what we want. I love that. And so that first thing we see is that desperate desire for the presence of God. The next thing I want you you to see in this um, comes to us also in verse 12. He says in verse 12, Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you also have found favor in my sight. So, wh- what, what, is the, what is the statements in terms of, now we don't have that original conversation between God and Moses. But Moses gives us insight into something that God had communicated with him. Moses, I know you by name, and you have found grace or favor in my sight. So one of the things that that happens when we are known of God, when when we know his person, not only is there a deepening desire for the presence of God, but there is a deepening discernment of our position in God. Because he, this, it's a beautiful thing the way that that, state, that phrase is there. I have known you by name. Now if you take that literally it doesn't sound all that amazing. right? I've known you by name. What did, exactly does that mean? I know a lot of people's names. But that doesn't mean I know them very well. What well, what is going on here? And even I've known you by name. We might say we might think name might speak of reputation or character. But the terminology that's often used with uh, Moses and God is uh, there was no prophet that God spoke to face to face as He did with Moses. Actually, if I was to go into this. Uh, uh, more literally into this passage where he says my presence will not go with you. He, it, it's more literally is my face will not go with you. <laughs> I've known you by name. The, the nature of that it's the, it, the phrasing speaks of such a personal intimacy and interest. It, uh, the, the phrasing kind of um, plays out in passages um, like Isaiah 43. Um, Isaiah 43, verse 1 uh, says this, But now says the Lord who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you, I have called you by name, you are mine. Okay, Do you you see the, the development of that? I have called you by name, You are mine. There is that personal, intimate interest and attachment that takes place. I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. It's not a random thing. It's not just like everyone else in the world. It's not the Jebutites, the... the Parasites and the Hivites and all of those people. It's not the Sodom's and the Gomorrah's and not the Jonah's and all, or, or Nineveh's, all these kinds of things. But there is this special and peculiar privilege that God has set upon Moses and even set upon these people that they would be known by name. You know, it's a phrasing that belies this, a sense of intimacy and interest. Uh, uh, To give you a a sense also of the specific calling by name, that deepening discernment of our position, to be called by name, is is, uh, where God distinguishes a person, out of the rest of the world, distinguishes them into an intimacy where they are dealing with each other closely, and also where there is from God an endowment an enablement indeed a grace that is placed upon that person let me give you a a, a picture of that also out of the book of Exodus in Exodus 31 for example it says this 31 verse 2 see I have called by name Bezalel the son of Uri the son of Hur of the tribe of Judah and I have filled him with the spirit of God with ability and intelligence with knowledge and all craftsmanship and so on and so forth to develop the things that need to be done so here was a man now did God call him because he had all of these skills no what does it say he called him by name and then he what fills him with the spirit of God and with ability and with intelligence and, and, and all of that that flows out of uh, that, that filling with the spirit of God, that endowing with ability and intelligence, that special gracious working of God to fulfill his design purposes it begins with that phrasing or it's introduced with I called him by name. Okay, And that that sense of I called him by name is, is brought together in an interest and an intimacy where God so works within that individual to equip him and to work through him his purposes. I mean, that's remarkable, isn't it? So to be called, I mean, these are things that really we don't, get from the sense of the English called by name and known by name. Uh, one of the, um, the, the carefully studied uh, lexicons of Hebrew, if you're familiar with it, it says, it says like this, the idea of known by name is to recognize a person as his chosen and called to execute his will. Or put more specifically, they are put into a specifically personal relationship with God which was peculiar to Moses and therefore associated with the name. It's to to separate out, it's to distinguish, and it's to bring into a specific relationship one that endows and enables and equips all of God's wonderful working. And so you see that in there. And when we think of that, we think, what a privilege. Oh, to be Moses, right? Oh, to be this other individual. But is this the only place that we have this idea of called by name? Those of us who are familiar with the New Testament, see that we've got a great shepherd who does that very same kind of thing. And it tells us this in John chapter 10. Concerning the great shepherd who indeed is Jesus. To him the gatekeeper opens. And the sheep hear his voice. And what does he do? He calls his own sheep by name. And leads them out. Isn't that glorious? What does he do? Here are all these sheep mixed together in a pen. That may belong to various kinds of shepherds. Because that's often the way that it, it could be done. And he comes and he calls his sheep not randomly, but specifically. Not generally, but purposefully. And when he calls them, what does he do? He leads them out. He endows them with that work so that they want to be with the shepherd. They now have a desperate desire for his presence. They have a recognition of their position. It goes on, when he has brought out, verse 4, when he has brought out all his own, he goes before them. And the sheep follow him. Why? Because they know his voice. Further in John chapter 10, down in verse 14, Jesus again says, I am the good shepherd. John 10, verse 14. I know my own, and my own know me. Now, please note, for the Hebrew mind, knowing is not merely acquaintance. Okay, this is the same term that says, for example, Adam knew his wife, and she conceived and bore a son. Knowing <laughs> speaks of a very intimate personal interest in communion indeed an intimate connection between those two I know my own and my own know me I'm so thankful that this knowledge isn't just some kind of acquaintance it's actually Christ in me and I in Him in in, in a remarkable transaction of of, uh, grace that boggles the mind how powerful and how rich it is. And we're brought into that relationship called by name, just as the Father knows me. And here's the context, the the depth of that intimacy. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. The level of love and intimacy that it would be between the Father and the Son remarkable that's not even no way construed as acquaintance and that that is the type that is put forward as to the relationship that I now have with Christ because he knows me by name I have found grace in him see a little bit further and that's really the In verse 27, if we were to keep going, and maybe we will, of chapter 10. My sheep hear my voice, I know them and they follow me, and I give them eternal life. And they shall never perish, and no one will pluck them out of my hand. Here's the other beautiful aspect of that. What was his fear? If you will not go with me, then do not take us up. But with regard to us under the new covenant. (laughs) He calls us by name and what does he do? He leads us out. And that leading us out, that keeping us safe in his hand, it comes also with that attendant and attached reality and promise. He will never leave us or forsake us. And so this concern here, no, no, if you won't come, if you will go, he will never go. But does it change the fact that the desire and passion in our hearts still are, I want to be walking with him. I want to be in nearness to Him. I want to be pleasing to Him. He is my shepherd. He is my chief. He is my all in all. I don't care if we don't get the land right now. I don't care if we don't get the house right now. I don't care about those things. More than those things, I care about Him. And to walk with Him. To live with Him. The the next idea in that passage, it it says not only did He he say, if I... You know me by name. It says, if I have found favor. That idea is uh, stated many times in the scriptures. Um, Again, noting this, and you've got to always understand scripture in agreement with scripture. If God was to mark sin, mark iniquity, who could stand before him? Indeed, no man is righteous before him this is what the scriptures teach us so it's not as if God looked around and says Moses he's the best because Moses wasn't the best Moses didn't think he was the best we saw the interaction at the burning bush Uh, I'm not important I can't speak well I, I, I don't have all of the right skills even if we look at his history He hadn't proven particularly special or particularly noble, and he had ran off frightened after he had killed one of the Egyptians in defense of one of his own people. So the the finding of favor is not the earning or meriting of favor. And actually the the King James there says, if I I found grace in your sight... And maybe that helps to convey the idea better. Because once we say the idea of grace, it takes away that as soon as I do this, this, and this, then I will get grace. Because the whole idea of grace is you did nothing, right? And so when he says I've found grace or found favor, I've been granted grace, the idea is Really, that Moses is reminded of God's divine assurance and has such courage. And this is again from Delich, Has such courage as only faith can produce. He has. He he he's he's there and saying, "If I found favor in your sight," he's just experienced how God heeded his intercession. How God is continually provided for them. He has a history of which he is confident in the fact that he stands in grace. Let's see, let's see a, a, a little sense of, of this idea. 2 um, uh, uh, Peter chapter 1 says this, and it's a very interesting phrase. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 1 says Simon Peter, a servant and Apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours, by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. Now, what happened? These people, they had, did they earn it? No. Did they exercise it? No. They... Received it. And what's also very important to know is, the faith that they've received, the grace wherein they stand, is what? Of equal standing with who? The apostles. But wait a second. The apostles, weren't they the special ones? Weren't they the chosen ones? May, aren't there certain people who call them saints? Right? Well, of course it's they who write to the churches and say to the saints <laughs> who are in Ephesus. Say, Wait a second. Because saints are all the believers and what has made us holy and distinct, saintly compared to the world and what we were. Being united to Christ, the imputation of the righteousness of Christ. And they understand that their standing and their acceptance before God is the same as every other believer. Nobody got there by earning it or gaining it. Everyone is where they are because they received or obtained it. Does that include Mary? The mother of Jesus? Yes. It does. There's no distinction between her. Between those who were the siblings of Jesus. Between those who were the specially selected apostles. Every single person who stands in acceptance before God. Is on the basis of one and one alone. And that is Jesus Christ. And that acceptance is of equal standing for all believers that they have been marked out they will they will come before the day of judgment without a spot of shame why because we will be found in him not having a righteousness of our own that comes through the law or comes through the flesh but that which comes through faith I mean, it's remarkable isn't it and uh, that is all of the work of God And then, but what's interesting, look at verse 2. So here is this person has obtained faith, has received faith. And how did that come? Well, it's the exercise of God's grace, his own discriminating and distinguishing mercy. But then he, he goes on to say this May grace and peace be multiplied to you. What? I already had grace, there's more. There's not only the wonderful acceptance with God, the forgiveness that is in Christ, there's more grace. There's grace to rise above temptation. There's grace to overcome the enemy. There's grace to persevere in times of hardness. More and more abundant grace overflowing to you. May it be multiplied to you. Grace isn't done on the day of our salvation. Grace is overflowing and at work within us until we stand in glory. And he's wanting it to overflow in remarkable degrees. And what's, import, what's interesting to notice, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of our Lord Jesus Christ. The, the sense of their growing in grace is not going to come by wandering in the wilderness, by sitting on a hill by staring at a statue none of those things are going to help them to grow in grace their growth in grace is going to be in tandem with in unity really flow out of their growth in knowledge as God continues to open their hearts and minds up to understand more and more of who he is more and more of what is pleasing in his sight as he works these things in us with knowledge, it's not just so that we know them. As we've been seeing and will continue to see in in the the Sunday school, this knowledge produces a practice that is consistent with that knowledge. And, and And it's a remarkable thing that I wish the world would understand. Those who have so diminished the grace of God to where it is just a ticket to heaven you know, where the rest of the train ride, you're, you're just like the world, but at least at the end of the ride, you're going to be in heaven. That's actually absolutely wrong. Because you're no longer going the way of the world. You, my friend, are on a different track altogether. You have a great shepherd, a new leader, a new name, a new nature. You're moving a different direction entirely and if you're not transferred to different tracks you know not the grace of God because God's grace doesn't just say hey hand this to Peter at the pearly gates you know, that's just a bunch of jokes that people make up. That nonsense as if Peter himself is is the one. We're not going to have to stand there and give account to Peter or anyone else. We are accepted in the beloved. The rest of that stuff is utter nonsense. Okay. What I also want us to see in this, and it's so beautiful. Uh, In this passage, listen to what he says here in verse 13. Okay. Very important. He says, not only, he says, we, okay, so the, the next thought is we want to see a divine devotion. We found grace, and look at what it says in verse 13. Now therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, so he's already standing in a position of favoredness, he's already standing in a position of grace, and what does he want? Now please show me your ways. Why does that matter? You know, I, what's, I love this because it's so different than much of modern Christianity. What is the cry of, what I, what I would call the cry of divine devotion here? Show me your ways. What is the cry of the world today? Give me what I want. Give me my ways. Give me my things. Now, some people think that they're showing divine devotion when they say, God, give me the world. God, give me all these things. Yes, you see, I'm, I'm very devoted. I want God to give it to me. I don't want to just get it myself. That, that's not devotion. The, the cry of the devoted heart is, show me your ways. Uh, uh, The things of the world necessary to an extent become incidental and indeed expendable compared to knowing God and being found in Him and walking in His ways. And so the passion of the heart that is transformed by grace says, God, show me your ways. I want to know more of you and who you are and what you're all about. I want to know not only that I'm saved, I want to glory in the way that you saved me. I want to walk in your ways, and so I need to know what your word teaches. I need you to unfold it to me. God, show me your ways. And listen to what He says next in order to find favor in your sight now, now again so are we earning grace no may it never be but the desire is that we might please him that we would be pleasing in his sight and these things are confusing and and, and we can't perfectly understand all of the mysteries of God but there are those parables that indicate that those servants uh, work in such a way that when they stand before God in heaven he would say to them well done my good and faithful servant now some will read in Corinthians oh these people are saved though as by fire so I guess that's good enough as long as I'm saved no the the people who end up being saved as by fire that wasn't their goal Through mistakes and errors, they misstepped and misunderstood certain things along the way. But they were striving and just missing the mark to a certain extent. They're they're not just coasting along. There there is a a, a remarkable devotion here. Show me your ways in order that I may find favor in your sight. I don't just want to know it. I don't want to just contemplate it. I want to know it. Why? Why? Because this is what delights you. This is what you have shown. Show me what you desire, because I want to be about that. It's remarkable. I, I mean, th- where's the wish list? Where's the give me this and the give me that? Actually, he's even saying, take it back. I don't even we don't even I don't even want the land. I don't want the milk and honey. I don't want all of those things if I can't have you. And more than that, I I want you, and I want more of you. I have received your grace, I want more of grace. I I stand in a favored position, I want to please you and delight you. Such a a blessed condition. And then he says this, consider too that this nation is your people. Wait a second. God, God had said to him, what? You and your people. And thankfully. Moses never missed it. You know. That, that way or mo- mode of man's thinking. But he understood no. Really we could say this. I'm not my own. I've been bought with a price. You're not your own. I mean to too many, to too many places and too many groups. Uh. Churches will be named after men or individuals. Ministries are named after men or individuals. And all these things go on and on. And, and uh, I'm of Paul. I'm of Apollos. I'm of Cephas. And we get our own modern Christian celebrities where I'm of him and I'm of them. None of that is the big deal. And our eyes ought not be fixed on men, but on Christ. It, 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 it becomes too fast about the location, about uh, the building, the premises, the organization. My church. His church. Brother so-and-so's church. Pastor so-and-so's. Reverend so-and-so's church. What church do you go to? Oh, I go to Reverend... Is it his church? And, and, and the sad thing is, then we start thinking about that. Hey. Why don't you come to my church? Yeah. Well, I mean, I appreciate the sense of ownership, but uh, what we don't want to miss is this. We are His. The church is His. Our life is His. I don't care how many people fill the room. When it becomes about the room and when it becomes about the community, when it comes about the... The, the man who's standing and preaching, and it's not, no longer about Christ, and it's not about God, it's not a coming together that we may worship him for who he is, and a gathering that we may know his ways and seek his delight. Oh, it's a, it's a fine step. And usually the transition between one and the other happens unnoticed, it's just a natural drift. I mean, none of those people in Corinthians that Paul was scolding. How are you saying you're of Apollos, you're of Paul? Uh, uh, or any of you bap into our, our, our names? No, we are nothing. Christ in God is everything. But at, at no point along the way did any of them probably think, we're not of Christ, we're of Paul. We're not of Christ, we're of Apollos. At no point did they think that. They just took their eyes and... And lowered them to lesser lights. And in so doing. They missed it. The measure of grace and benefit. That might come through that person and that servant. Can be good. And can be useful. But Christ cannot and must not be replaced. It has to always be. And even as we come together. It has to always be. That we might worship him. We want to grow in grace, we want to grow in knowledge, but we want to praise His name. we want to worship him in spirit and truth i mean which which again means when we come to church it 's not so much about well it was I liked it today i didn 't like it today, it was good, it wasn 't good uh, you know or, or shopping i 'm church shopping and, uh, or whatever it may be well, are we coming together for shopping or are we coming to worship <laughs> right are, are we coming together uh, To assess the quality of musicians and vocals or are we coming together in order that we will praise the name of our God and hear his word and grow in knowledge and know his ways and walk in him why do we do what we do I fear there's a world out there where people go through the motions cultural Christianity, traditional church-isms, and they just go through it. You know. And uh, without that sense, when two or three gather in his name, he is in the midst of us. And so the, we worship him, and we glory in him. Those other things are incidental. Ms. okay. Further, I want to also see this. the result of all this as it unfolds again with the teaching teaching your ways the the way that it unfolds there is, is so beautifully phrased because he says in verse 13 look at the tone of it if I found favor in your sight if I truly am standing in grace please now show me your ways what a humble and submissive and pleading tone, please show me your ways. Uh, the, the, what's the timing of it? The tone is, is, is a humble pleading please. The timing of it is, please show me now your ways. I want to know now. I want to grow now. And, what, uh, and what's the teacher and the source of the teaching? Your ways. I don't want to know this guy's way. I don't want to know that group's way. I want to know your ways. And fourthly, I want to see the dynamic dealings from a personal God. Look with me in um, verse 14. As he's questioned and as he's asked about God and says, you need to go with us, this is what God answers in verse 14. My presence will go with you. So he said, I was going to send an angel. Moses was not wanting to go if it was going to be just an angel and just the things and what a merciful act of God! Wait, but wh- why? W- why is God going to do this, going with them? <laughs> they're a stiff-necked people. They're just going to disobey. They're going to let him down. They're going to fall short. And yet, what does God mercifully do, anyways? He goes with them. Now, we're not the same as Israel and that same stubborn and stiff neck. We're new creatures in Christ. We are transformed by grace. But I dare say, there may be an occasion, once a year, no, or, or we let him down. We don't speak aright. We get caught up in the moment, the frustration, the anger. We don't act aright. Our priorities get mixed. The world draws us. The frustration, the temptation, the desires, you know, the evening news. Whatever it would be, all these things, you know, they they mess with our minds. And here's here's the reality. Even though they weren't going to be deserving, and even though they were going to be stiff-necked, He was going to go with them. Even though I'm never going to really live absolutely worthy of him I'm called to live in a manner that is worthy of him and that's my calling and that has to be mine and your commitment but will we finish any month and say this was a worthy month yeah this month was yeah you know will we do that I haven't Uh, if you have let's talk afterwards (laughs) because But here's the beauty of it. Even though we don't. Do you know what we've got? My presence will go with you. And I will give you rest. Really? Even though I don't deserve it. You're going to go? Even though I've not earned it. You're going to come. And you're going to grant me rest. And you're going to provide. How is that? The mercies of God. You know, as the psalmist says, his mercies are new every morning. And we need them new every morning, don't we? <laughs> Amen. So, so beautiful. If I found grace, teach me your ways. My presence will go with you and I will bring you rest. The promise of a personal presence. Even as we move to the New Testament, the idea of a redeeming rest is far greater for us than it was of them. What, what symbolized their rest? They're done wandering, and they're in the promised land. That's no good. Because what was that fraught with? All kinds of problems, all kinds of abandonments and persecution. But in Christ, we will never again be enslaved to sin. It will no longer have dominion over us. For we are a new creation in Christ Jesus. Even we might go so far as to say, there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Again, we can go as far as to say that. Why? Because that's exactly what God says through Paul in Romans chapter 8. There is no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ. So we enjoy that personal presence. We we are assured of that remarkable and redeeming rest. And further, I want to note what it says. In closing. In verse 16. He says that. uh, As Moses now responds back. For how shall it be known. That I have found favor in your sight. I and your people. How shall it be known. This is in the old covenant context. But we bring it forward. How shall it be known. That we are people in your grace. How shall it be known. And this is. How it is explained, is it not in your going with us? There is your personal presence with us. God is with us. His Spirit dwells within us. That certainty of God's personal presence. And further, not only His personal presence, we also see there will be, as a result of that truth, a detectable distinction Is it not in your going with us, so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of this earth? Okay? So, basically I'm going to boil it down like this, you know. This would not fly in a study of religions class, okay? There are basically only two religions in the whole world. True and false. That's it. <laughs> There's only one true. And everything else expressed in many ways. and many different uh, uh, unfolding expressions in history and, and, and terms. But it's all false. There is God's way. That which comes from God the creator himself. And that which has come from the imagination and instigation of creatures. Whether evil spirit beings or wickedness of man makes no difference. There is true and there is false. And that is why those who stand in grace. The powerful uh, transforming reality of God's presence with us. Makes us distinct from every other people. On the face of this earth. And so those who travel around realize that. They get and get to experience that. I'm, I'm leaving on Wednesday to go to India. And as I get there. There, there are a group of people. In some churches and in a, in a, in a school there. That I'm going to be ministering in. And those people. Though culturally different from us. Though they have uh, clearly a, a, a different dietary intake than we do and so many other uh, uh, styles and and clothing and and practices. I tell you this, when you meet them and you interact with them, it doesn't take long to realize, hey, they're more like me than my next door neighbor. Because we share Christ. We have a passion for the same things. We want to know his ways. We want to please him. We want to be found in him. Our hope is in him. Our confidence is him. This is my brother. Different different hairstyle, different skin tones, different everything physical. But they have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours. You know, I don't want to break your hearts, but American Christians don't have a higher standing than any others. All of our standing has nothing to do with our heritage. It all has to do with him. Our standing is in Christ. And so just as we close this out, I just want to remind us of the things that we've seen today. Those who, how shall it be known that we have found favor? How shall it be known God's, the evidence of God's electing grace? One, there will be a desperate desire for the presence of God. I don't want to go if you're not going with us two there will be a deepening discernment of our position in him we're known by name we are granted grace thirdly there's going to be a divine devotion I want to I want to please you I want to know more of you teach me your timing Uh, even a sense of insistence and urgency teach me please teach me please teach me now that I may know your ways, that I may know you, that I might might find more favor in your sight, that I might grow in grace and knowledge. Fourthly, there are these dynamic dealings from God, this promise of a personal presence, this promise of a, a redeeming rest, and the certainty of a detectable distinction. This is the evidence of God's electing grace in our life, and this is the God we know and love and serve if we're in grace because grace doesn't just deliver us in the day of judgment grace delivers us from our sin now in order that we may no longer walk as we walk live as we live but now we love him more than anything else and we make it our aim to please him let's pray Lord, we are very thankful for just the opportunity to see these things in your word. Lord, I pray that you would, again, through hearing this, set us free from the distraction and temptation of this world. Show us, Lord, the vanity, the uselessness, the fleeting nature of all that is physical all these things that are temporary and transient and give us that sense that you had stirred in Moses that your presence is the priority above all else a desire to draw near to you a desire to know you more a desire to grow in you more a sense of that rich privilege to be known by name to be called by you to be redeemed and resting in Christ well we are a blessed people and that blessing is all because of your grace